This is a, a kind of a pivotal time for the city in a couple of ways. Could you explain what the city was like in 1913? Dublin was unusual capital city. It was also the city outside Belfast which had the largest population of Protestants. If you take the county as well, um, there were over 90,000 Protestants in Dublin city and county at the time. So they're a very significant group, very significant at the top of society. And Protestant population in Dublin was a bit of an inverted pyramid that uh, it was the unskilled workers who were the smallest group within the Protestant community. In fact, the only occupational group in Dublin, lower income uh, group in Dublin where Protestants uh, predominated was the British Army. The city was unusual. Um, It was in many ways a British city. Uh, British musical culture, for example, uh, was very strong in Dublin. There were a lot more theatres in Dublin than there were in Belfast or other provincial cities, even though Belfast was a much bigger city than Dublin. Um, And in fact, I mean, Dublin was in many ways uh, like Liverpool. Um, It was not by any means cosmopolitan. It it was very British in its tastes. uh, And that in turn sort of provoked intense antagonism uh, across a broad spectrum of people ranging from uh, members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and the Irish Volunteers were formed late in 1913, to the Catholic Church, um, to Murphy. All of these people saw socialism as another manifestation of, uh, or most of them saw socialism as another manifestation of Anglo-Saxon materialism, which was uh, destroying Gaelic civilization as they understood it. The city hadn't changed that much since the Act of Union in terms of population, except it had been a downhill story. Uh, If you look at most British uh, provincial cities, uh, the 19th century was a great epoch when they built a lot of their uh, great architecture and that, and the same would apply to Belfast and City Hall. There is a monument to that. But if you look at Dublin, uh, it was a period of decline, and most of the great buildings in Dublin uh, date from the 18th century or the very early 19th century. Um, Now, the city had expanded under the 1898 Act to include uh, some of the more prosperous townships on the north side, uh, such as Drumcondra and Clontarf, Glasnevin. But the really rich areas, if you like, uh, such as uh, Dunleary or Kingstown, as it was known then, and Rathmines, were still outside the city. And a big problem uh, that resulted from that was that um, the revenue of the city declined along with the uh, economic activity, but the social problems uh, multiplied. So you had a corporation in Dublin which never had the resources to properly service the city's needs. And by 1913, one of the big problems with that was the appalling housing situation, where you had a third of the population living in uh, uh, really appalling conditions. Um, and that was to be a, a big issue in the 1913 lockout. More specifically on the question of employment in the city, there was a lot of poverty partly linked to casual labour. That's right. I mean, Dublin was unusual, again, partly because there was never any real economic growth in the city. Uh, it was very unusual. Something like 17% of the uh, adult population were dependent on general labouring or casual work for a living. This was an extraordinarily high figure compared with uh, British cities. Um, and it meant that uh, you had this permanent reservoir of unemployed or underemployed labour that uh, employers were able to exploit uh, fairly ruthlessly. And if you look at the figures, pay rates in Dublin fell below about 25% of the going rate in uh, places like Liverpool and Manchester. Uh, you would get a significant increase in emigration from the city. And whenever it 
rose above that and, and came a bit closer to the British rates, then emigration fell. But roughly, rates of pay in Dublin were about uh, uh, three quarters what they were in Britain, and uh, they were aggravated, uh, as you say, by the, uh, the lack of security of employment. And that problem made it almost impossible for general unions to develop in Ireland. Uh, they'd been a major feature of the British landscape since the 1880s, but Larkin's great achievement when he set up the Transport Union in 1909 was to break through that barrier and to give uh, Dublin workers, unskilled and semi-skilled workers, the confidence uh, and the sense of solidarity they needed to actually organise and get representation in the workplace. Yes, and that brings me on to my next question, because into this city which suffered from poverty and, and social division came this very new kind of trade unionism, uh, led mostly by Jim Larkin. Larkin organised initially in, in Britain, and then in 1907 he was sent over to Belfast, and uh, he organised a general strike up there, brought it to a standstill in 1907, uh, and while he was in Belfast then he visited Dublin and he uh, did some work down here uh, recruiting people to the National Union of Dock Labourers. Larkin's sort of style of uh, theory, style of leadership uh, was at odds with Sexton, who was a very cautious, traditional uh, trade union leader, and eventually the two men fell out over over Larkin's uh, very uh, aggressive strategy in in Ireland, even though he was recruiting extra members for the union. He was also landing it in various serious disputes, and it all came to a head in uh, disputing Cork, where Larkin used some union funds uh, to pay some dockers who were on, on official strike, which was against union rules. Larkin was charged with fraud, I think more or less at the instigation of, of Sexton. So it was very acrimonious uh, parting of the ways between the two men. Uh, Larkin actually went to prison for a brief while as a result. Uh, but when he came out, he was out of a job with the National Union Dock Labourers, so he, he decided to uh, set up the Irish Transport and General Workers Union in, at the beginning of 1909, and uh, he effectively took any members he could from the NUDL in Ireland. Uh, very few joined him, but some did from Belfast, but the bulk of the people in the rest of the country did join him. You've got to remember that traditionally trade unions, even when they were illegal, as they were for most of our history and Britain's history, even when they were legalised in the early 19th century, they tended to represent skilled workers like weavers, um, engineers, uh, and so on. Then in the 1880s, you had this upsurge of uh, new unionism where uh, semi-skilled and unskilled workers like dockers began to organise, and suddenly they became very important in Britain. But it was really only after the transport union was set up in in Dublin that suddenly... uh, those general unions became a power within Ireland. And in fact, very quickly, they became the the dominant force within the Irish trade union movement. And that had lots of consequences because uh, Larkin, uh, Connolly, Bill O'Brien, people like that, uh, had a strong sense of Irish nationality as well. And they didn't want just to replicate what was in Britain. They wanted to create distinctly Irish unions. And they would have supported... um, Home Rule, or, or I was in the case of Connolly and Larkin, the Socialist Republic, um, Connolly's thoughts on that were more uh, finished than Larkin's um, at the, this point in time, but they both w- were committed socialists, and they were, uh, in fact, Larkin proposed and Connolly seconded the motion at the Irish TUC conference in Clonmel in 1912 uh, to set up a Labour Party. And so the Labour Party owes its origins to that motion. The employers were led by a man called William Martin Murphy. Can you tell us a bit of his background? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, William Martin Murphy was, I suppose, um, 
Ireland's first Catholic nationalist self-made millionaire. I mean, there were people like the uh, the Guinness dynasty before that, uh, but they they were Protestant. It's interesting, actually, if you look at the directors of various companies in Dublin in 1913, it's very stratified. You'll see that the big the big railway companies, say for, like the Great Southern and Western Railway, were dominated by uh, by Sir William Golding and other members of the Anglo-Irish um, ruling class. Uh, and in fact, Murphy broke through that barrier and he became the first Catholic director of that company. And then if you look down to sort of the light railways, like the one immortalised by Percy French, the, the West Clare Railway, all its directors are Catholics. Um, so there's a pecking order there. Um, and uh, in Dublin, you would have had that as well to, to some extent. But I suppose Murphy's great achievement, uh, well, first of all, he, he, he established himself as a, an accepted member of the ruling class within the employer population of the city. He became the first Catholic president of the Dublin Chamber of Commerce. And his great achievement in 1913 was to convince employers. Uh, Larkin had had a run of victories in the first half of that year, winning very big increases for his members using sympathetic strike tactics. But he convinced the employers that this tactic could be turned against them with the sympathetic strike by employers, uh, which would take the form of a lockdown.